It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, violence, maiming, and suicide. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Just as a heads up, this will be the concluding episode of this season of You Never Can Forget, our investigative miniseries on the Burgershoff murders. Starting next week, we'll be returning to our coverage of other restaurant-related homicides. Now, that's not to say we're done with this case, though. We'll continue to work on it in the background, and we'll circle back with you to share what we found. We may stick to tradition and come out with a slew of new episodes in November of 2022, or we may come out with updates sooner than that through bonus episodes. But before we go, we wanted to highlight something that we've come to appreciate about the Burger Chef case. It's such a horrific tale. An unsolved mass murder. 
Four young people so violently ripped away from their lives, from their families, from the friends who cared about them. Perhaps because of the sheer scope of this crime, or because of the lack of answers, we've noted that people who've been touched by the Burgershev case have formed a community. It's rich and it's far-flung, and it's made up of many voices. We wanted to dedicate this season finale to a handful of those voices. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we're The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. We're continuing the multi-part look into the Burger Chef murders we began last year. Each week, we will be presenting you with new information and context about what happened as part of our mini-series, You Never Can Forget. We don't just rely on what we've been told or what we've read. We have worked this case ourselves. We decided to do this podcast so we can tell you what we've learned and even clear up a few misconceptions. We're the murder sheet. And this is You Never Can Forget, The Voices. You can't have a comprehensive discussion about the Burgershev murders without also mentioning some other crimes that occurred in Speedway in 1978. The murder of Julius Cyphers took place essentially right down the road from the restaurant on July 29, 1978. And then there were the bombings. Eight bombings in total. Explosives that were detonated all around Speedway. Brett Kimberlin was ultimately tried and convicted for charges related to those bombings. Five murders and eight bombings seems like an extraordinary amount of shocking violence to descend upon a small enclave on the western edge of Indianapolis. Today, we're going to talk to someone who witnessed the final and most devastating bombing firsthand. He knew the people involved. We're just going to call him Jerry. I was a commercial industrial electrician and uh, have lived there in Speedway since 1965. What was the crime like in that town? Um, Very, um, very, very narrow. I think there had been, we had a a police, uh, a police action shooting in, I want to say it was about 1972 or 73. Uh, and a rifle shooting, the guy pulled a gun on him and, and out of a car. Uh, and other than that, uh, a few minor burglaries, but it was, uh, again, very conservative, very safe. Um, and due to that fact, uh, I think part of the Burger Chef and the um, bombing investigation was probably weaker than if it had been in a larger city. I don't think our detectives uh, and police force was ready for what uh, what transpired in that period of time. 
I'd have to say that it, safe, uh, Speedway was a very safe uh, place in which to live. Uh, we had a large family at that time. Uh, we had a large family. And um, our kids, <laughs> I, I'll say this, we had eight children, but it's from two marriages. And our children, well, we felt very, very safe uh, letting our kids go to the Burger Shack back to Maris every Friday. Uh, my wife would give the kids money to go to Burger Shack for lunch, which was an open lunch day. And um, we felt very safe. Uh, there just, you know, there just wasn't a lot of known crime. Um, the apartments uh, changed some of that uh, as they grew and uh, they opened up to, I don't know, three or four apartment complexes. Uh, it got a little more complex after that, but uh, nothing significant. And we have a very efficient, we had, I no longer live in Speedway, but we had a, we had a very efficient uh, fire department and police department. So we really felt safe. We just didn't feel like there was something, you know, major going on. Then came the bombings of 1978. Six of the bombs that went off were within earshot of our house. And uh, quite honestly, uh, it was very, very frightening, but very mysterious. Because, like I said, there just wasn't much crime to build a case around. And when the Cypress murder happened and they started investigating it pretty thoroughly, um, that's, that's when the bombing started. And I don't know if the Cypress murder was ever, I don't know if it was ever solved. If it was, I never read about it in the paper. Um, after the very first bomb, uh, we didn't think much about it because it wasn't, it wasn't really that close to us. The second bomb, the third bomb, we got a little more frightened, a little more frightened. And as it transpired through to the seventh bomb, uh, the seventh bomb was very close to our house. I was, beginning, I was beginning to wonder if somebody was targeting me or my family. Um, and to, to go to the eighth bomb, well, which took place at the Speedway High School, uh, my wife and I and two of our younger sons uh, were there at the game. And... Um, uh, my son uh, was quarterback on the Speedway team, and uh, it just took us all. It, it just took us all by surprise. And the uh, I'd have to say that the um, <laughs> the fear that went through everybody's mind previous to the eighth bomb was getting more and more real because they were uh, at such regular intervals, and so. When the ball went off in the parking lot, um, it was, uh, I mean, it was, everybody was running. Uh, the team had just passed through. Uh, it was very frightening, very frightening. And um, uh, myself and the high school principal was standing beside my car, my van, and my wife and two sons had just left the parking lot. And um, when the ball went off, um, uh, Mr. Bainbridge, who was the principal, was standing outside my car door, and he immediately fell to the ground because it was with it was within 150 feet of where we were standing. Uh, but it was pretty tumultuous that night. But something unexpected happened at the Speedway football game that night. 
something that may have even had an impact on the night's tragic outcome. Keep in mind, Jerry is about to discuss the horrific effects of a bombing, so please skip ahead a few minutes if you're not in the right headspace for this. All right, I'll, I'll add a little something to the story. With about five minutes, four and a half, five minutes left in the football game, um, there was a delay in the game. Uh, there was a fight on the field, and it probably took two and a half to three minutes uh, to get the field cleared up, get everybody back on the field, and so on and so forth. It was pretty serious. And it was probably two and a half to three minutes. Uh, the football team had left the field at the end of the game, and most of the players had already walked through the parking lot area headed to the school. Uh, had had there not been a delay in the game, um, it probably would have, it could have been even more serious because the bomb was in a gym bag and had one of the boys picked up that gym bag and carried it into the school, uh, it could have been very a lot more serious than it was. Um, now, to get back to the bombing itself, uh, I was just stepping in my van, and, uh, and Mr. Bangers was beside me. And when the bomb went off, I dove into my car, and I can remember uh, looking towards where the bomb went off in the parking lot. Um, I can remember seeing Davey Long go up in the air, possibly 20 feet in the air, and doing a flip in the air. And when he came down, he actually landed on his back. And um, I, I, it was just a, a sight that I'll never forget. Uh, his wife was not as close to the uh, bag as he was, and he did not kick the bag. Uh, as was stated in a couple of, of articles, uh, actually Dave bent over to pick the bag up uh, when the bomb went. I call him Dave. His name is Carl, but I've known him since, um, probably seventh grade when I met him. And um, when the bomb went off, um, uh, it, it was it was I mean, it was just terrible. And I immediately uh, jumped out of the car and ran right straight to the body that was laying on the ground. His wife was laying on the ground, but I don't believe she went up in the air, but Dave did. And um, I got to him, and I had on a... I had on a... a t I had on a T-shirt. Uh, I had on a T-shirt and a sweatshirt over it. I had been to Little League football practice, uh, and uh, I ripped my shirt off, um... I'm not trying to sound like a hero because I wasn't. I, I um, got down on the ground beside him and I ripped the outer cherry cloth uh, sweatshirt off and uh, made a very, very tight uh, tourniquet around his, um, oh gosh, I think it was his right leg. Uh, much of this, uh, you know, this was a long time ago. Some of this stuff is not as fresh as it used to be. But anyway, I got the, um, I really slowed the blood flow uh, it, it really worked. The tourniquet really worked. Uh, there was there was blood. Days was blood was all over everywhere. I had it all over me. Uh, it was it was pretty scary. And um, I, the other leg was bleeding, but it wasn't bleeding as bad as the uh, the really severely injured leg. And um, I didn't have anything else to make a tourniquet out of. 
So there was a, couple, a lot of people still running around, and I screamed for somebody to give me a belt. And uh, I, I'm not sure who gave me the belt. That Of course, the fire department was called, and back then there was no 911. Uh, and <laughs> uh, the fire department uh, probably took about four or five minutes to get there, but I had the bleeding pretty well stopped by that time. And uh, somebody had thrown a blanket over his legs, uh, so it, it couldn't be seen. It was a gross, grossly looking sight. So anyway, uh, the fireman, the, the guy from the, the tech from the ambulance, got out of the car, and I said to him, I said, "This guy's going to need uh, some super powerful pain medicine." And the guy said, "Why is that?" And he pulled that blanket back, and he. He about passed out. He said, oh, my God. And it, the blood was everywhere. Um, later on that evening, they, they, of course, took him to Methodist Hospital. Later on that evening, the surgeon uh, that had uh, operated on him, <clears throat> it was about, I'm going to say it was about quarter to 12. And uh, the surgeon that had operated on him called me and said he had one pint of blood left in his body. Uh, so, had we not got that bleeding stop, he would have probably bled out, <laughs> which, <laughs> uh, which I'll never forget as long as I live. My God, one pint of blood. I mean, I, I gotta ask. I mean, you did everything right. I mean, like, I, like, did you have any training in like first aid or anything like that? Were you just doing it intuitively? Well, to believe it or not, I was working for a, a small electrical contractor. <laughs> and they had had a, about two weeks before all this happened, they had had a first aid meeting and they, they actually trained us in mouth to mouth, mouth to nose, uh, tourniquets, a whole bunch of stuff. And yes, uh, the practice helped. There's no doubt about it. It probably saved his life. I had known Dave, I had known Dave for a long, long time and he had gone through, I don't know how many parachute jumps in Vietnam, uh, you know, to have this happen in your own backyard, pretty weird. Would you was, would you be comfortable telling us a little bit about what Dave was like before this accident? You mentioned, you know, you went to middle school together, so you know, you knew him for a long time. Well, we had coached Little League football uh, and baseball together. Um, David was a tough guy. He was not very big, but boy, he was powerful. And a good football player. In fact, matter, he played football for a short term, a short time uh, in the Army. And um, played on the line. He probably weighed 200 pounds. But he was tough. He was really tough. I was glad to have him for a friend. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I was glad to have him for a friend. He was uh, a good guy, uh, a really good guy. What was his life like after the bombing? Uh, fretful. Um, the damage that was done to him was very, very, very significant, not just on his legs, but all over his body. And uh, when they collected all the stuff out of the bombs, uh, there was nuts and bolts and shrapnel, the tie wire, um, and there's all kinds of stuff. Just a, 
uh, a homemade bomb that was changed a whole family's life forever. Uh, they'll never be the same. And you know, during the uh, during the search for the perpetrator, uh, the town of Speedway. Before they finally made some arrests, the town of Speedway was. I mean, we were really on uh, on guard. Uh, if you saw a trash bag with something in it, uh, you saw something which suspicious. You saw it. Yeah, it, it changed. Um, it changed our lives. There's undoubtedly. And we had been a, a small, uh, very conservative, um, small city, uh, Indiana City. And uh, with the Cypress murder and then Mr. Cypress dying shortly after that, uh, then when they started making uh, progress with the investigation, uh, everybody, everybody was, you know, we were pretty, uh, pretty scared. And I'll tell you a, a strange side story. Um, one Saturday morning uh, during the investigation, um, I live close by the, pretty close to the uh, police department. And uh, Speedway police car pulled in our drive and a guy knocked on our door. <clears throat> oh, forgive me. And I said, are you Jerry? Yeah, so-and-so. And I said, yes. He said, uh, you, you need to be seen at the Speedway Police Department right away. I said, well, let me grab my keys and I'll meet you down there. And he said, no, uh, I've been instructed that you're to ride with me. I said, really? The room. And there were seven or eight people sitting around a couple of great big large tables. And uh, they started questioning me. And because I'm an electrician, because I have uh, access to blasting caps, uh, we use them in construction, uh, I became a suspect along with several other people that lived in Speedway who were also electricians. And as we're sitting there, uh, I recognize the gentleman from the Indiana State Police. I went to high school with him, and I recognized uh, one of the... Uh, I, I, of course, I knew the Speedway policeman, but I recognized one of the city policemen was there. And I, I looked at the one guy and I said, am I a suspect? And the, uh, the fellow from um, uh, Alcohol, ATM, uh, he said, everybody, he, he didn't even let anybody else say anything. He said, everybody's a suspect until we solve this crime. <laughs> You're talking about shaking. <laughs> I was shaking in my boots only because they hadn't accused me, of course, but because of where I was and at the close proximity, and I saved this gentleman's life, uh, maybe it seemed like, you know, to them that may have been a, a suspect. So it was quite scary. Um, I, I'll say it was very scary. And we uh, locked our, uh, we locked our kids basically uh, in the house until it was finally solved. We really watched our children. So. That's pretty much, you know, that's pretty much the story to that bombing. Unfortunately, about four and a half years after the bombings, DeLong died by suicide. The effect the bombings had on the DeLong family was an unimaginable horror. And the terror these blasts caused spread through the community. For years, 
there's been speculation that the bombings and the Burger Chef killings were connected somehow. That started early on. Here's Jerry again. Let me let me say something else that really never made sense to a lot of people. Um, when the Burger Chef murders took place, and it seemingly they they hadn't arrested anybody for the bombing yet, and it seemingly slipped past the Speedway Police Department that when the kids were found to be missing and the, and the Burger Chef people were allowed to clear it up. After all that we had been through, and I know that it was paramount on the Speedway Police Department's mind. There's no doubt in my mind that they were more concerned about that. But the fact that that terror had happened and that they didn't pay that much attention to the Burger Chef situation was a little surprising. And I knew most of the officers on Speedway, and they were a good bunch of people. They're like, you know, local hometown people. But for that to slip past and allow the scene to be cleared up uh, always mystified me. Yes, I don't, you know, I'm not a police officer, but, you know, 40 years ago, things were a lot different than they are today, of course. But it was still... It was still kind of mystifying that it got away from him like that. You make such a good point, and I'm just going to say this, and like I never really even thought about it quite like this before, but like, sure. it's, it's Speedway previously had been a low-crime area, but I mean, we're talking about months after uh, an unsolved murder of an elderly woman at her house, and yep. also a series yep. of bombings, right? I mean, yep. yeah, that's baffling. And then, and then, and then to have this happen... It just seemed like every officer on the Speedway Police Department would have been so suspicious because we were we had been looking for empty packages, empty sacks, uh, you name it, so on and so forth. Every morning that I went out after the bombing, every morning that I went out to go to work, I checked under my car. I, my work car said outside, uh, but I checked under my car. I, you know, I, it was just. It was just such a, just a horrifying uh, feeling uh, to be subjected to the the terror that happened in those, in, I don't know, maybe a two week period of time there, but it was it was really <laughs> it was really very exhausting. So yes, and very interesting. Uh, I have always somehow thought that. The Burger Chef murders may have been tied uh, to the to the bombing, but I believe that theory has pretty well been put to sleep. So, but I don't know that for a fact. We've often harshly criticized the Speedway Police Department for allowing the initial crime scene to be compromised. The story is that one of the first officers on the scene figured that the crew had stolen the money and gone out partying. Now, none of the victims had any sort of record that we're aware of that could have pointed to a scenario like that. But Jerry raises a great point. This wasn't a sleepy suburb anymore. A series of vicious bombings had just ripped through the town. Why weren't Speedway police more on edge that night? One thing is for sure, however. The crimes of 1978 particularly the horrific injuries sustained by his friend, will continue to haunt Jerry 
and likely other residents of Speedway. Uh, my children will never forget it, nor will I. Uh, it, it's, it's in the back of my mind. I have dreamed about it multiple times. And when you wake up with a cold sweat, uh, you know, when I hear people talk about this uh, post-traumatic syndrome that uh, the soldiers go through, uh, I, I wasn't in the Army, but I can tell you that uh, for a long time after that, it really, it really was in the back of my mind all the time. And um, this is very scary and that's the truth. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. One facet of this story that's hard to convey in a podcast is just how close everything is in Speedway, Indiana. For instance, Speedway High School, where the final bombing took place, 
is just a short five-minute drive away from the old Burger Chef. We've told you in the past about how we visited the old Burger Chef building on Crawfordsville Road and Speedway, which was the site of the abductions. It's now abandoned and gutted, of course. We haven't really gotten into the company that was Burger Chef, though. At its height, it was one of the top burger chains in the United States. Today, it seems to be forgotten by many, a detail in an episode of Mad Men, or a footnote to the discussion of the murders of Jane Freed, Ruth Shelton, Danny Davis, and Mark Flemons. But an aspect that we feel gets overlooked is that Indianapolis was Burger Chef's hometown. McDonald's had Oak Brook, Illinois, and later Chicago. Burger King has Florida's Miami-Dade County. Wendy's has Dublin, Ohio. Well, Burger Chef had Indy, starting back in 1954, when brothers Frank and Donald Thomas first unveiled their flame broiler. Three years later, the Burger Chef brand was born. As a result, the city and its suburbs were dotted with corporate-owned restaurants. Young managers like Jane Freed moved from location to location to hone their leadership skills. And the murders essentially happened in this company's backyard. Last summer, we connected with a fellow podcaster named Darren Gibson. His show, The Burger Chef Podcast, delves into all things Burger Chef. We interviewed him about the chain to give our listeners a better context about this company. Here's Darren. Well, my interest in Burger Chef started when I was a kid. Um, I just fell in love with the place back in 1973. Well, I'll, I'll go back a year before. 1972 is when Burger Chef, through their parent company, General Foods, started to cater more to children. They did that first with the Fun Burger. The Fun Burger was just a plain hamburger or cheeseburger that they put the wrap around, but then they stuck it in a box and they included a toy prize with it. No other fast food had done that at that point. That They test marketed the Fun Burger and then they rolled it out nationwide. It got over so well that they decided to make it a meal. Since they were the first to, they, they basically created the combo meal with the triple treat, hamburger, fries, shake, for 45 cents back in 1965. So when they did that, they just said, hey, we could do this for children too. We'll give them a hamburger, fries, soft drink. We'll include a sweet treat, which most of the restaurants that I went to, it was a individually wrapped cookie. Then they had the toy, the what they call the surprise of a prize. And it could have been anything. It could have I mean, they just had all sorts of different toys. But then the fun meal tray was also interactive. Puzzles, games, mazes. And then they, of course, had the characters, Burger Chef and Jeff, and then all the other ancillary characters. Uh, Cackle Burger, the witch. Fang Burger, the vampire. Uh, Were Burger, the werewolf. And just so many different characters. And that's kind of how I got involved with it, was, was just, they were catering to children. I happened to be five years old at the right time, I guess. And and like, what sort of feelings did eating there like evoke in you as a, as a kid that you sort of remember now, you know, looking back on it? Well, it was the experience um, because 
you know, the food was good and everything. I, I preferred it to McDonald's and Burger King and whatever else was around at the time. But them really catering to children just, I think, kind of did it to me subconsciously to the point that my father and I would go pretty much every Saturday to one of the local burger shops. And that, that was kind of our time together. So I guess it's a lot of nostalgia involved with it. What would you tell people who never went to a burger chef about what makes burger chef special? Burger Chef was so innovative when it came to fast food. Uh, the Thomas brothers, Frank Thomas Jr. and Donald Thomas, pretty much built the flame broiler for Burger King, of all people. Burger King, when they started, was Insta Burger King. They were having issues with their broiler for their burgers. They called the Thomas brothers. and they, the, the Thomas brothers owned a company called General Equipment in Indianapolis. They were well known at the time for selling milkshake machines to restaurants all across the country. They came down, they're, they're both mechanical engineers. They came down, they looked at the broiler that Insta Burger King had and said, okay, we can fix this. Fixed all the issues with it. And then said, well, we'll just build broilers for you if you wanna buy them from us. And they said, sure. And I guess eventually there was an agreement when the Thomas brothers started Burger Chef that they would not infringe on Burger King's area of Miami, Florida, and Burger King would not expand to Indianapolis. At least that was the original agreement years ago, but then that kind of fell by the wayside after a few years. But Burger Chef was, was innovative. Uh, the first fish sandwich in fast food, the first double-decker burger in fast food, they beat the Big Mac by three years. They, be, they beat the filet of fish by about a good year or so. Uh, they did the first salad bar in fast food, the first build your own burger, the, the works bar in fast food, the first kids meal in fast food, the first, uh, they did the first burger with bacon on top of it in fast food. Uh, that was uh, 1978, uh, surprising enough. So that that's kind of the year that you guys focus on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 78 was a, pretty big year for Burger Chef as far as changes. They added the Top Chef to their menu. They also added the Mushroom Burger to their menu at that point. They, I believe, also added the Chicken Club to their menu. So they would, if, if my memory serves me correct, they would beat Burger King to the chicken sandwich market. But also in 1978, they changed logos for the final time. They went from the smiling burger logo that they used from 1973 forward to the chef's hat logo that most chain with. Um, so that was a big year. Kevin also had a question about Burger Chef's main menu item, dating back from his Indiana boyhood. I just wonder on this past you, when uh, I was a kid, I was not allowed to eat at Burger Chef because uh, there was a rumor going around my hometown in Southern Indiana that the hamburgers at Burger Chef were made of worms. <laughs> and I just, obviously I, that's not true, but I was just curious if you'd heard that rumor before. That's the first I've heard worms. I've heard horse meat. I've heard a lot of horse meat, but no, not worms. And I can tell you horse meat's not true either. That the All of that had to be USDA approved and 
yeah, I the USDA is not going to approve horse meat in this country, at least for human consumption. <laughs> <laughs> you missed a real opportunity to prank us there. You've been like, uh, yeah, well, it was worm meat. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that maybe that's why Burger Chef didn't do so well in Canada. In 1982, Burger Chef was sold to a Moscow, which also owned the Hardee's chain. After that, naturally, most Burger Chef locations converted to Hardee's restaurants. But there are a few holdouts out there under new names, if you're curious. There's a place in Cleveland, Tennessee called The Chef. They were a burger chef in 1960. They they started as part of the chain. When the Hardee's merger went through, they separated and then they dropped burger from their name and just called themselves The Chef. It's still the original building from the 1960s. They even still have the arch on the roof that used to have the oval Burger Chef sign that would light up. They apparently still sell Burger Chef food just under different names. So you can get a double-decker burger that looks like a Burger Chef Big Chef from 1965. That gave us an opening to tell Darren about the ridiculous exercise in sleep deprivation Anya and I once went through in order to sample Burger Chef cuisine. The other place is Susie's in Char- South Charleston, West Virginia. Oh, you have, huh? Yeah, we stopped there on the way uh, between Indianapolis. And tell, tell him, tell him the the circumstances of us stopping there because I think he needs to know about that to know well, how no, he's feeling. Yes, okay. yes, I do. Yeah, you need to know the circumstances. So we uh, were going to Indianapolis, you know, on a, on, a, on a you know short trip, and. Uh, Susie's is is not it has kind of odd hours it's not open all day so basically we figured out that the only way we could hit Susie's on the way is if we woke up at 3 a.m and started driving (laughs) and we did it and we did that what time did you make it there oh like I think like one and they closed like at two at two o'clock yeah I don't understand that and uh, I mean yeah they're they're known for their breakfast but Come on, a burger place is supposed to be open past two o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, it was, it was honestly, driving there was hell. But honestly, the food was great. I mean, it, it was it was a great burger. And it Can felt I, like stepping into a time machine. It really felt like a 1970s burger chef. When you look into the burger chef murders, you find that people are curious about whether or not the slayings helped put the burger brand out of business. So we posed that question to Darren. By the time that Amasco, which at the time was Hardy's parent company, purchased Burger Chef, I think the chain was down to about seven or 800 locations from a peak of about 1,400. So they had lost half of their locations. A lot of it was just local competition, McDonald's and Burger King. Burger King was rapidly expanding at that point. And as I said, McDonald's was just going crazy with expansion. By 78, they were closing more stores than they were opening at that point. I don't think that the murders really affected the business of Burger Chef. So I don't think the murders really had a lot to do with the downfall of Burger Chef. I'm sure it didn't help around the Indianapolis area. Now, contrary to what you might imagine... The Speedway Indiana Burger Chef did not close after the murders. 
the restaurant continued to operate for a while. And we were fortunate enough to speak with the young manager who took over for a while after the killings. This is John Gordon, a former Burger Chef assistant manager who now does consulting for the restaurant industry. I was probably, I was on duty that night as an assistant manager. On the night of the murders, he was working the closing shift at the Burger Chef on 34th and Lafayette Road. And by the crow, that is probably maybe two two miles, okay. And and I didn't find out about it the next until the next day. He told us that working in management at Burger Chef could be kind of intense. Burger Chef was a very, as all of the quick service restaurant chains are, uh, even now still to this day, they are very command and control, very militaristic uh, orientated, okay. Um, uh, following strict procedures, following, you know, wearing a uniform, having your shoes shine, you know, you know, all, all of those kind of things. And I will say that, uh, working for Burger Chef was, was, uh, a very good thing for me in as much as, uh, Burger Chef at the time was owned by General Foods, you know, the big food conglomerate which at that time owned restaurants and they uh, they had put just a tremendous amount of capital investment into Burger Chef. You had an assistant manager or two uh, that worked each store. You had a, a store general manager who reported to an area supervisor. And in this case, for me, uh, there were actually a couple of area managers that I worked for over my two and a half years there, I guess. Neil Calder was one. And they generally had between four to, to four to seven units, okay? It's a geographical territory. It, it was a very command and control related system. The, there were checklists, there were inspections, there were timed um, uh, requirements for how, how fast a customer should be greeted or how fast should you uh, process a drive-through transaction, you know? That strict business culture and the fact that the Burger Chef and Speedway was corporate-owned and not operated by an independent franchisee seem like significant points to mention. In our minds, that casts some doubt on the rumors that drugs were being sold out of the restaurant. But that's not to say that no one ever broke the rules. Here's John speaking about the average Burger Chef employee. The uh, the employees uh, were so this is 1978 so this is you know post Vietnam um, uh, the kids were very friendly uh, I mean uh, probably smoking uh, marijuana was the biggest uh, big deal um, there it was the beginning of drug culture I was you know uh, I was a total 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 square okay <laughs> i mean i never did any of that I, I i'm an only kid an only child and so my only interest in life was to get through college and get uh, you know get uh, get a start in the restaurant business and get into the corporate office okay um, i mean that was my goal so i i didn't socialize i didn't really socialize uh, uh, at all with with my hourly employees. You know, I I just kind of knew that that was the wrong thing to do. John had met Jane Freed a few times and knew Speedway as a low-volume restaurant. Instead of a general manager and two assistant managers, 
It just had a general manager, Robert Gilliatt, Jane, the assistant manager, and a ship supervisor slash key holder. John didn't hear about the disappearance of the Speedway crew on the night of the kidnappings, but he still remembers what he heard upon showing back up for work after the news broke. And the next morning, I came to work. Uh, you know, assistant managers generally work from like two, two to close, two two p.m. to close, which is like around eleven o'clock, and then you got done and got out by midnight, basically. Not too bad hours actually <laughs> at the time, but um, so I, I saw Chris. Uh, uh, I, I, I very much remember this uh, that afternoon, and Chris had been crying. Okay, and um, he said, "Well, I." I presume you heard about Jane and the kids over at Speedway. And I said, no, you know, um, and, uh, he said, uh, they, um, they were found murdered in, uh, in, in a field in Johnson County. And I said, no, you know, so, um, he didn't talk that much more about it, but I, I have a very firm and solid, uh, memory of, of, of that. And then, John got a new assignment from his bosses at Burgerchef. He needed to take over from his late colleague, Jane. Now, let me, let me give you a little bit more of the story. This is, this is, this is uh, somewhat unbelievable. But so, um, all right. So um, that Sunday, uh, Jane, we got word that Jane and the kids were killed. The Burgerchef uh, was closed down uh, in Speedway that Sunday. Of course, with the usual profit motive, uh, they've got to get opened up the next day, right? So, um, because I was a pretty senior assistant manager, okay, um, I was temporarily detailed from uh, 34th and Lafayette, uh, Lafayette Road to Speedway, of all places. So, I, I was sent right into the belly of the beast, okay? So, I took Jane's position there. The company had restaffed the restaurant. The, the day shift employees were basically intact, although, you know, somewhat in shock, as you can imagine. The area manager was a gentleman by the name of Ed Cherney, C-H-E-R-N-E. Uh, very nice guy. Um, I don't know if his name ever came up in any of the, in any, in any of the discussion. So, so he was, he was actually the area manager. Uh, involved because you know in, in a dense city like Indianapolis you have all kinds of different burger chef area managers back in those days the 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 number of area managers to stores was very dense it, it was you know about six so I had to go, I had to go to Speedway and work there for um, some uh, I want I want to say probably three months um, in order to get them settled and get staff uh, re-upped and so I was actually there however the store opened um, we had just rolled out breakfast uh, sometime earlier that year I think I I could be wrong on this a little bit so it was important to get opened up early you know the lunch rush was always the busiest uh, time of day of course the Speedway store did have a drive through as you guys properly noted in your article we closed at uh, either 6 p.m. or 8 p.m. I can't remember which. Um, 
just because it was spooky there. You know, it was spooky. And uh, we got employees out early. So I, I wound up working a, a like a 12 to 8 shift, you know. I, I came in, helped through the lunch rush, and then got the store closed at 8 o'clock and, and got out of there. So actually being on site in that unit, uh, you know, all, all the employees that I would have run into, A, they wouldn't have known me very well. And then B, um, I, I, I never heard any other rumors once I got to Speedway. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Of course, many of the kids who worked at the Speedway Burger Chef, and a lot of them were literally kids, high schoolers, quit after the murders. And you can certainly see why. Four of your friends and coworkers get kidnapped and murdered while doing something as innocuous as closing a burger joint? I would probably quit too. Ginger Anderson, who we spoke with last year on You Never Can Forget the Night, was one of those kids. Another one was Brian Kring, who was a 17-year-old Burger Chef employee back in 1978. In some ways, he has one of the most important voices in the case. It's his voice that likely called out into the restaurant on the night of the abductions. It's his voice that crackled on the phone as he called Burger Chef management and then police about the disappearances. Here's Brian. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you were like in 1978. Oh, 1978, 17 years old. Um, started to work. I was uh, into uh, starting to get into bodybuilding back then. And just preparing myself to uh, enter 
contests. Um, went to Ben Davis High School. Um, I, w I was a very, uh, very shy person. So I had a hard time, um, at least in the beginning, if I didn't know you, I had a hard time interacting with people. Tell us about uh, getting the job at the Speedway Burger Chef and sort of what that, you That, that honestly, I can't remember how I got that. Um, I, I can't even really, I believe I was fairly new there, you know? I really didn't know, as far as I can remember, I really didn't know the people that well. Um, I did like Jane a lot. She, you know, seemed to like me. I got along with her. Um, and then, you know, I, I liked Ginger, and that's why we went on, asked her out on the date that night. Mark, I really, uh, what I've heard is, I don't know how true it is, I guess Mark and somebody else, what I was told is they would go to Zyke's gym with me. I, I don't remember that. It seems like that would be something I would remember. Um, so I assume fairly new there and you know, don't know how I got the job. They have no idea. What uh, caught your eye about Ginger? How did you guys sort of connect? Well, I don't know. She really connected with me at first. You know, you know, I thought she was cute, nice. Um, I had a big, uh, big fear of women, and I'm sort of surprised I asked her. You know, I, I'm, I was a big chicken. You know, you mentioned having positive memories of Jane. Um, the other three victims, uh, what do you sort of remember about them, if, if anything? Um, you know, R Ruth and Daniel, you know, I remember, I don't remember that much. I, I remember, you know, they were very smart kids. You know, they, they did very well in school and uh, really that's about it. And, and do you remember anything about Mark? Not really. Honestly, I don't. From what you recall, did it feel like a safe place? Like, what did robbery ever enter your mind at six? Oh no, no, it seemed like a safe place. Uh, I, I, I believe I enjoyed working, you know, there. And so we asked Brian to take us back to that Friday night, so many years ago. What do you remember about your date with uh, Ginger? Here we go again. Uh, honestly. I don't remember hardly anything. A very small, faint remembrance of us coming in there that night. But that's it. You know, very faint. I couldn't tell you. I sort of I believe I remember, you know, standing at the counter, and I, I believe I was left of ginger at the you know counter counter where you order your food and stuff and other than that um that had to be where i found out that somebody called in that night and said they couldn't close and then that's i believe that's it had to be when i told them that i would come back and help them close after i dropped ginger off and in terms of 
it, that date, you know, you're coming back from it. Tell us about that once you started noticing something was sort of odd. I'm going to go to it again. I honestly, I do not remember what Ginger remembers. You know, her saying that we passed by the Burger Chef and she noticed that Jane's car is missing. And I, I don't remember that at all. All I remember is uh, sort of, you know, when I arrived at Burger Chef, I don't remember dropping her off. I don't even know if, if I gave her a kiss at night or I have no idea, you know. You know, there's two ways in the Burger Chef, you know, both sides of the, you could drive all the way around. And I, I honestly, I don't remember which way, if I went, came to the left side or the right side. But what I do remember is when I got around to the back, I don't even, yeah, I'm pretty sure I was in my car, I drove around and I noticed the back door was cracked open and it's super dark back there. So with that light shining out, you know, it was pretty obvious that the door was cracked open and I don't, um, I, I went in the back and when I walked in there, um, nobody was there. And I'm sure I, I looked around the whole place and walked in the manager's office. And I do remember the safe sitting wide open. Um, I believe the cash doors were set out. And I called somebody. And whoever I talked to, they told me to call the police. And so I called the speed, I called the police and Speedway police showed up, I don't know, five, ten minutes later, whatever. And I don't, uh, that's, I know you're going to take this part out. That's why I want to go, go under hypnosis. There's so much I can't remember. I don't even remember uh, the police actually being there with me. I don't remember what the police asked me. Uh, my stepsister... Um, she said I called home. Yeah, she said I called home and to tell get my dad on the phone. And I guess my dad came straight down there. I don't even remember that. To the speed to the burger chef. So she vividly remembers that conversation I had with her. Back then, um, my coldness started to set in on me of me being a cold person you know hard to hard to get close to me you know I had titanium started to get to titanium walls and you know to, to, to keep people away because I had a fear of people and she yeah she definitely remembers when I called because she's the one that answered the phone yeah. Do you think that the, this horrible thing happening at your workplace and you sort of being so close to it, do you think that contributed to you having that fear of people? Uh, I don't want to say yes. And I don't want to say no. I, I really can't. I, I can't answer that. I, I don't know. And I guess looking back, I mean, do you feel that if you had gotten there a bit earlier or 
if the date with Ginger had ended earlier and you went to help close, I mean, do you think back on that and think, wow, I could have been? I, de I definitely thought that, you know, in, in the beginning and years after, but, you know, I, I had, you know, I, I mean, well, I didn't know another person showed up before I did, you know? That other person was Kirk Thompson, Mark Flemons' good friend. We interviewed him in our episode, You Never Can Forget, The Friend. I can't tell you exactly what was done, but I remember uh, a decent part of the closure had been done. You know? It wasn't like they just started. What sort of defects did you notice that indicated that? That I can't really remember, uh, you know, trash cans move. I, I honestly can't remember. But then again, you know, once you've been there a while, you learn to pre-close and get stuff done ahead of time so you can get out of there sooner. So if you have no customers come in, you know, you can have the grill cleaned and, you know, everything wiped down, all the food put, you know. Do you remember anything that the police talked to you about at the no, time? Nothing at all. And I don't, uh, I do um, get interviewed by the FBI. I had to take a lie detector test. Um, all I remember is they came to Ben Davis High School, took me out of class, and we did it somewhere at the school there. I don't remember any of those questions, anything. That must have been kind of scary, having the FBI give you a lie detector. Oh, my dad was worried. <laughs> Wonder what they were going to ask me, you know? Yeah. Were you aware of any drugs going through the burger shop? No. Because I, I at that time, uh, I didn't do anything. I wasn't really involved in it. I was worried about, you know, being in the gym and, you know... It was against my thing back then. And you didn't get the sense. I mean, what was your sense of Speedway as a, as a whole back then? Good town. You know, I moved from um, Pike Township in the middle of the eighth grade and went to uh, Fulton Junior High for half last half of the eighth grade. And dang, I'm trying to remember. And ninth grade, I was at Fulton, and then I entered Ben Davis High School. Going from Pike High School to Ben Davis High School, that was a big transition. So at that time, I think Ben Davis was like the third largest high school in the state of Indiana. So it was it was difficult for me in that area because I had you know, my friends in Pike Township. Now I'm going to a whole new township, you know, twice the size, three times the size. And, and I had a hard time, you know, making friends because of my shyness. It just felt totally out of place. Did, um, 
you know, after after the murders, after do you actually do you remember where you were or like anything about hearing about the, the killings for the first time? I vaguely remember I think I was with Ginger and a couple other people. I could not tell you who the other couple people were. So. Do you remember how you felt? No. No. It, I mean, to be honest, you want me to be honest? Of course. Now I feel a lot more than I did back then. That was, yeah. That, I mean, it's going to sound weird to you, but, you know, it's part of the disease of alcoholism, you know, so my disease started long before I even picked up. You know, I know that as my actions as a kid get in trouble for something, get punished, turn around, do the same thing five minutes later, um, talk back to my parents, an habitual liar. Um, and when my adopted mom passed away, um, I had so much resentment towards her that I was glad that she was gone. I, I had no remorse, you know? And, you know, years later, my dad, my grandmother, really, I mean, I'm gonna be very honest with you. At first, I know this is gonna sound weird and cold, but I'm just being honest. Just the way I was back then, or really starting to uh, build myself, it, honestly did not affect me. I hate to say that now, but but now, I mean, you know, it's, you know, I've transformed, I have feelings today, and, you know, things are totally different. And... When you think about it now, how does that, you know, what sort of, how, when you reflect on it, what sort of feelings do you have? It's something that should never have happened to the people I feel the worst for are Danny and Ruth like, two just two totally innocent kids trying to become adults get you know you know they're they didn't get to live their dream you know have family kids um whatever job that they were gonna go to, you know, out of college. That, that just, you know, there is no way those two should have died. It's sad. Do you think now, looking back, that either Mark or Jane were in, involved in something sort of criminal? Um, not so much Jane, unless it had to do with her brother, but definitely Mark. To be clear, we're not certain if either Mark or Jane was even into drugs at all. 
no one that we've talked to who knew them well has ever said that they were. But it is true that both had older brothers who committed serious crimes. As we detailed last year in our episode, You Never Can Forget the Brother. Brian also told us that he shares some of our frustrations with the Indiana State Police on this case. In the following statement, he's referring to one particular lead that we're not going to publicize here at this point. But it's a lead that he doesn't feel that ISP investigator Bill Dalton has taken too seriously. It's just, it needs to be pushed. And honestly... I can't say for sure. I have no idea if Detective Dalton checked that out. Because he won't tell me anything. I've tried to call him. Uh, It's probably been five, six months ago or something. Never returned my call. Because as far as I can see, state police aren't doing nothing. And And what really bugs me is I don't understand why. This is the number six out of ten top mass murders in the United States that has not been solved. Yeah. 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 That's a very good point. Number six. I mean, I understand there's a lot of stuff that Detective Dalton can't tell me. But then again, in that two-hour interview, he shut me down on everything. And Kevin's my witness. I was there. <laughs> it's really frustrating when I'm part of this story and nothing's being done that I can see. I mean, I could be totally wrong, but at least Detective Dalton should give all he has to do is say I'm investigating it I'm looking into it recently Brian has taken action to spur some more movement if you follow the case you've probably already seen that he did an interview with Fox 59 the local Indianapolis affiliate about what he saw back in 1978 and I'm sure Dalton saw the news thing that's the other reason I did it you know the the reporter was super nice you know and what he told me was this is the first thing we, we have to do is get you on the air after I get you on the air then I can push it with Detective Dalton after talking to Brian we reflected about the numerous people who have been affected by this case. First and foremost, the families and friends of the four victims. And then others further removed, like co-workers and classmates and law enforcement officers. You've heard from some of them today. We count ourselves in that group, too. We find ourselves thinking about Jane and Ruth and Danny and Mark a lot. I've had dreams about this case. Sometimes when looking into this story, we get overwhelmed by feelings of anger and helplessness. As we've discussed in past episodes, we're not confident that there's a robust police investigation into the case. 
Promising leads sometimes go nowhere. Memories and records are lost to time. This year, we decided to try to do something about those feelings of hopelessness. We decided that we ought to try to find the 38 caliber gun, the murder weapon used to kill Ruth Shelton and Danny Davis as they lay face down in the woods of Johnson County. The odds were certainly against us, but ludicrously, once we committed to looking for the gun, it somehow seemed not so impossible. We spoke with Alex Bitter to get some advice. He's my friend and a colleague at Insider, and also an avid metal detector. He did us one better and loaned out one of his detectors to us, which was very nice of him. The voice of a metal detector takes some getting used to. When we first turned it on, it started beeping indignantly at just about everything. Alex talked us through adjusting the settings and sensitivity to workable levels. When you're searching for coins, you might exclude ferrous or iron-containing metals. But with our detector, we could plug in settings that wouldn't prompt us to overlook these ferrous metals. After all, guns are made of steel, which is an iron alloy. Next, we had to make up our minds on where to search. We consulted the two main Burger Chef Facebook groups to solicit suggestions. We soon narrowed it down to a few places. A bridge that spans the White River near the intersection of Route 144 and Route 37. That place is quite near the murder site, and we reckoned it was the nearest easily accessible body of water. A bridge over Sugar Creek in Hancock County because former Burger Chef suspect Donald Forrester indicated to police that he disposed of a gun there. The Oliver Avenue Bridge over the White River in Indianapolis. That's another Forrester tip. The parking lot of the Meyer in Avon, Indiana, based on a tip I once received about Jeff Reed. Then, on a cold and rainy day in September, we set out. Spoiler alert, we found nothing. Nothing aside from a rusted disc of metal and an old crowbar. At the first White River site, we pulled over at a closed dental office and trekked through a thin path in the undergrowth until we were under the bridge. Both Kevin and I nearly tripped on the way there and back. Once we got to the river's edge, I actually fell in the water. Well, in fairness, It'd be more accurate to say I abruptly sat down in the river after losing my footing in the mud along the banks. I'd been trying to reach a small slip of sand. Altogether, the river was too deep and swollen to effectively investigate. It was also too deep to metal detect the bridge over the White River in Indianapolis. At Sugar Creek, we waded around until our legs were numb. The creek bed there was nice and pebbly, and it was shallow. That's where Anya pulled out the crowbar and the scrap metal. At the mire, we awkwardly wandered around the grassy edge of the parking lot. We found nothing. We knew we'd find nothing, and that we'd probably make fools of ourselves in the process. But still, it stung. You hope beyond hope that maybe, the next time you plunge your hand into the murky water, you pull out something that somehow could break the whole case. But the thing that metal detecting and looking into a case long gone cold have in common is disappointment is part of the process. No matter what, you've got to keep looking. 
keep digging through the silt and stones and keep your ears attuned to the new beeps. Keep searching for new voices to add to the chorus. Thanks to Jerry, Aaron, John, and Brian for sharing their stories with us. Check out Darren's show, The Burger Chef Podcast, on Spreaker.com or at The Burger Chef Podcast on Facebook. We'll link to it in our show notes. It's a must-listen for anyone interested in Burger Chef's history. And thanks very much to Alex Bitter, friend of the show and metal detector extraordinaire. Follow him at Coin of the Day on Instagram. Thanks to everyone who talked to us this season of You Never Can Forget. Please keep Jane, Ruth, Danny, Mark, their families, and the Hickenbotham and DeLong families in your thoughts. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.